0: Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and in your light we see true light. Therefore, illumine our hearts and our minds now, we pray, by the power of your Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. For we make our prayer in the name of Christ our Lord, the word made flesh. Amen. Amen. The Old Testament text comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 36, verses 5 through 10. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your judgments are like the great deep. You save humans and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! All people may take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your salvation to the upright of heart. And the New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "'They have no wine.' Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus' first miracle, or sign, as John prefers to call them, occurs in the village of Cana about eight miles from Nazareth. And the scene begins in a rather ordinary way there's a wedding jesus goes with his family and friends the after party is carrying on people are having a good time but then the caterers run out of wine and suddenly a lack has entered the otherwise joyous occasion people run out of wine all the time i suppose especially as the night goes on but at a wedding well That's not when you want to run out of wine, is it? If you like to host guests, chances are you can relate to the angst that comes into this situation and invades the party. Mary must have been an empathetic person because she picks up on this deficiency first. When the wine falls short, as the Greek text comically puts it, when it begins to lack, Mary goes to Jesus and states the obvious. They have no wine. Ever the model of faith, Mary shows us what to do when we become anxious about that which is lacking. Take it to the Lord. When we worry there won't be enough, when we worry that something is going to fall short, when we're stressed about whether or not a limited resource will be sufficient, we must take it to the Lord in prayer, as the old hymn goes. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and grief to bear. Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Many of us are wrestling with some sense of lack this year as the new year begins. The Omicron variant, inflation, shipping delays, lack of workers, our lives are out of sorts in all kinds of ways. It feels like our jars are running dry. The impulse to bring that which is lacking before the Lord is the first impulse of faith. It's the seed of faith from which faith grows. But in our culture of abundance, well, it's easy to not want to bring that which is lacking before the Lord because it's embarrassing in our culture to run out of anything, really. It's embarrassing to run out of wine at a wedding, and we're often embarrassed when we feel something in our lives is lacking. Sometimes we run out of savings. Unexpected expenses hit us out of nowhere. We get laid off, or the stock market collapses. Sometimes we run out of patience. Expectations placed on us take their toll. All work and no play makes us dull. Resentment boils over, or... Some straw breaks the camel's back. Sometimes we run out of hope. We try to stay positive, but we can't see the forest for the trees or see the glass half full anymore, see the silver lining, because we can't catch a break. Nothing goes our way. We get too far behind. Our society worships at the altar of self-sufficiency and independence, right? And so if our finances are tight, we don't want to admit it. If we don't have it all together, we put on a brave face anyway. If we don't have all the facts, we still talk like we're experts. In our world, we feel embarrassed if we're broke, or if we're broken, or if we're uncertain. And in our embarrassment, it's easy to withhold that which we lack from the Lord, and far easier to live in denial of what is lacking But Mary models the impulse of faith for us and looks to Jesus to provide in her time of need. When worry sets in about what we sense we are lacking, the simple response is to entrust it to Jesus, to look to him to provide our daily bread. Mary's directions to the waiters about what they ought to do next reflects this simplicity. Do whatever he tells you she says. And Jesus' subsequent simple instructions require simple obedience. He tells the stewards, fill the jars with water. So they fill them to the brim. And then Jesus says, now draw some out. Take it to the chief steward. So they do. And the steward tastes the liquid and declares it to be the best wine of the night. Resolution is found. That which the stewards lacked has been filled with abundance. Their needs have been met, and their embarrassment and shame erased. And what's more, it's not just any wine that Jesus has produced, but the best wine. Somaliers or not, the stewards announce that the wedding party has saved the best for last. And so here's where the truth of this text challenges the ways of the world. God's grace isn't given to those who still have enough, but to those who are empty. God's grace comes to those who are anxious about that which is lacking, to those who have become aware of their need. Martin Luther said, Grace does not feed the full and satiated, but the hungry. It's a nice enough lesson to be sure, an important reminder for us, We have a God who wants to be brought into our fears and concerns. We have a God of abundance who wants to be invited into our sense of lack. We have a God who cares about even petty human concerns like embarrassment or proper hospitality. It's the obvious lesson from the text and one that we need to hear again and again and again. But lest it all seem too easy and lest we settle for a five-minute sermon this morning we should note the challenge that this text presents as well and today's passage confronts us with the problem of the miracle on which the passage hinges after all if God's provision only comes in the form of mind-boggling wonders that defy the laws of nature and reason if God only provides by means of a miracle then can we really count on God in our time of lack? If we're feeling financial pressure, can we expect God to turn our pennies into fifties? If we're feeling burned out, can we count on God to give us robotic focus or for the effects of caffeine never to give out or run dry? Does God attend to our weaknesses or our sense of lack by outright overriding them? Is that what we should expect? The theoretical problem of miracles and their frequency of occurrence within Scripture has challenged Christians for a long time, and especially since the Enlightenment. Does God overrule the laws of nature or not? Christians have come up with all sorts of different answers. Some say that miracles happen all the time, either because of God's secret will or because someone has enough faith or because of someone's spiritual gifts. Others have said miracles used to happen, but ceased or wound down during the age of the apostles, and that now the Holy Spirit no longer gives the spiritual gifts that elicit miracles. And still others have said that though there is a God, miracles were always an illusion because the laws of nature can't be overridden even by the God who put them into place. Thomas Jefferson was a famous advocate of this point of view, and his Jefferson Bible removed all of Jesus's miracles, leaving only his moral teaching. While many Christians today believe miracles still happen, while others do not, at least not in the sense in which they've usually been defined, life itself is a miracle, some might say. Every day is a miracle. Others believe that Anything is possible, and they hold out hope for a dramatic, impossible occurrence, perhaps only to be left disappointed. I've heard many accounts of modern-day miracles myself. Water into wine isn't one of them, but a doctor told me once that his small bottle of life-saving medicine never gave out despite treating thousands of needy patients on a medical mission trip. Many people have shared stories about cancers or diseases suddenly disappearing, and their doctors' shocked reactions. I've heard of checks arriving in the mail at just the right time from unexpected or previously unknown people or sources. And especially throughout my travels, I've met many pastors with countless accounts of the miraculous. But what should we make of it all? when we find ourselves experiencing some kind of lack in our lives, when anxiety about something that is running short begins to grow, we should turn to Jesus to be sure. But should we turn to him expecting a miracle, demanding a miracle? Should we look for a dramatic, sudden reversal of fortunes? Is that what it means to really have faith? Or does it set us up for disappointment with God? Well, isn't it interesting that although Jesus performs countless miracles throughout the Gospels, he also objects when people demand he perform them before their expectant eyes. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, he says, to Pharisees who demand to see a miracle, and then he leaves without meeting their demand. Sometimes people want a magic show so they can marvel at a wizard. They want Jesus to prove his identity, to prove that the rumors about him are true, to prove that if he performs miracles, he can perform them on demand. But instead, Jesus' miracles work to bear witness to the kingdom of God. That's his focus throughout his ministry. He doesn't conduct his ministry with a chip on his shoulder, with something to prove to everyone he meets. Jesus' concern is to faithfully establish God's kingdom In word and deed. Now, I happen to believe in miracles myself, and I believe the accounts of miracles that I've heard. I have no reason not to. But I don't believe that there's a recipe or a formula for how to provoke them. There's no blueprint for miracle production, no level of faith achievement that can get you the goods. Like the wind that blows where it chooses. God's Spirit defies human control and predictability and manipulation. And yet, God's Spirit can always be counted on to provide, sometimes in unexpected, profound ways, sometimes in very subtle ways that are only discovered after the fact. Consider again the nature of the miracle in our text today. It's not eye-popping or dramatic, is it? It lacks glamor or pizzazz. This miracle is subtle and elusive. The water doesn't darken into a deep purple before the eyes of everyone celebrating this wedding, and they don't all put their faith in Christ at once. No, the guests are carrying on seemingly oblivious to the fact that the wine has run out. Actually, no one sees the miracle happen. It's discovered. After the fact, when the steward tastes the water-turned wine, he doesn't exclaim, wow, a miracle. In fact, he seems unaware that it wasn't wine all along because he asks the groom why he saved the best wine for last. Only the waiters seem aware of this miracle, a parenthetical remark that John sticks in there for us, for it was the waiter's who knew that the wine had run dry to begin with. This wasn't a miracle for all eyes to see. It wasn't meant to provoke a revival or elicit shock and awe. This miracle was a subtle wink to those who had brought what was lacking before the God of abundance. Now there's wonder in this miracle, to be sure, but the miracle works its wonder in the hearts of the already believing disciples. John describes the outcome that this sign elicits at the end of the text. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So in our moments of lack, when we take our anxiety before God, we shouldn't make our faith contingent upon a dramatic, earth shattering miracle. Not because such miracles don't happen, but because they don't happen all the time. They don't happen on demand. We shouldn't give God something to prove as though God owes us something. Besides, looking for a startling miracle might take our attention away from the inconspicuous ways that God sustains us in our time of lack. Somehow, as is so often true, God provides in our time of need and often in subtle ways, but always in a manner that is, in the end, somehow miraculous in its own right. So friends, when we find ourselves lacking something, when we find ourselves in a time of need, we know that the allure of the miraculous may be tempting. It may whet our appetites. And sometimes God acts with wondrous power, and the miraculous breaks into our world. But perhaps more often, God acts with quiet wisdom, summoning us to patient obedience that trusts that there's more going on than meets the eye, there's more going on than we can put our finger on in a certain moment. And with time, because God is gracious and faithful, we just might look back and realize how miraculously we've been sustained how God has provided in unexpected ways in our time of need. And we just might exclaim with the chief steward, wow, God has saved the best for last. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.